In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. After exile on earth, I hope to enjoy the possession of thee in our eternal fatherland. But I have to wish to amass merits for heaven. I will work for thy love alone, my sole aim being to give thee pleasure, to console thy sacred heart, and to save souls who will love thee forever. At the close of life's evening, I shall appear before thee with empty hands, for I ask not, Lord, that thou wouldst count on my works. All our justice is tarnished in thy sight. It is therefore my desire to be clothed with thine own justice and to receive from thy love the eternal possession of thyself. I crave no other throne nor other crown but thee, O my beloved. In thy sight time is nothing. One day is as a thousand years. Thou canst in an instant prepare me to appear before thee. St. Therese, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So last, after the last talk, there was a second handout that was white, so I don't know if you saw that back on the table there. So if you didn't, you can pick that up. And then there's a third one as well for tonight that you can pick up after the talk is done and use that for your meditation and reflection and to whatever extent that could be helpful to you. And then there's also a orange sheet, trusting God when life is hard and we fall from grace. So... You can pick that up, and then there'll be a green sheet, how St. Therese of Lisieux was nearly sent to Vietnam. So, and we'll be looking at that, and this one in the talk tonight. So one of the things that we left off with was that Therese is basically the patron saint of missionaries, along with St. Francis Xavier. Now, St. Francis Xavier, he really traveled throughout the world bringing Christ to a lot of different places. And so it makes sense that he would be a patron saint of missions because he himself helped to establish and was a part of that whole missionary experience. So... When St. Therese was made a patron of the missions and of missionaries, there were some people that said, how could she be the patron saint of missionaries when she didn't even leave the convent? She didn't, she didn't even go outside of this place her whole time as a, as a Carmelite nun. How could she be for missionaries? And of course... It is because she said she was going to apply all of her sacrifices, all of these, these ways in the little way that she was going to offer these, these, these little sacrifices 
for the missionaries, for the success of the missionaries, for the safety of the missionaries, for the success of the missionaries in reaching the hearts of many people with the gospel of Jesus and being able to baptize them into the church. And so she was so dedicated and so fervent to doing that that it was just recognized she really, truly needs to also be there along with St. Francis Xavier as one who is truly dedicated to the missions because she had such a love and a heart for missionaries. And she herself, of course, wanted to be one. And so she basically had approached her superiors in asking if this would be a possibility. And she says, this will perhaps surprise you. It is not a dream that a Carmelite think of leaving for Tonkin. Well, no, it's, it's not a dream. And I can assure you that if Jesus does not soon come looking for me for the Carmel of heaven, I shall one day leave for that of Hanoi. For now there is a Carmel in that city. The Saigon Carmel recently founded it. So she was really, truly wanting to go there and be a part of this newly established Carmelite monastery. But because of her health, and it was so fragile, they didn't think that she could survive the, the journey over there. And remember, this is in the days where, you know, you got on a ship and you were on there for at least a month if not longer, uh, before you finally got to your destination. And traveling clear to, to Asia, uh, that would be quite the endeavor. And they just didn't think she would, she would survive the trip there. And so she was told that she should probably stay right here uh, in, the, in the monastery. So she says, perhaps you want to know what our mother thinks of my desire to go to Tonkin. She believes in my vocation for really it has to be a special vocation and every Carmelite does not feel called to go into exile. But she does not believe my vocation may ever be realized. For this it would be necessary that the sheath be as solid as the sword. And perhaps, our mother believes, the sheath would be cast into the sea before reaching Tonkin. <laughs> it's, it is not really convenient to be composed of a body and soul. <laughs> this poor brother ass, as St. Francis of Assisi called it, often embarrasses its noble sister and prevents her from going where she would like. And so you just see that, that, that just very humanness that she herself realizing, my body is not cooperating. And have any, any of you ever experienced that? <laughs> and so this combination of body and soul, yeah, she says at times it can be very inconvenient. And so she then recorded later an autobiography that she prayed she would be cured of her illness and be free to travel to Saigon. Let me tell you, dear mother, why, if Our Lady cures me, I wish to respond to the call from our mothers 
of Hanoi. It appears that to live in foreign Carmels, a very special vocation is needed, and many souls think that they are called without being so in reality. You have told me that I have this vocation and that my health alone stands in the way. But if I am destined one day to leave this Carmel, it will not be without a pain. And of course, she never did get to do that. It was not too long after this that she was then called to heaven. And so, and not too long after that, the church claimed, uh, proclaimed her the patroness of missions. So, just wonderful to see how, once again, this obscure nun in this tucked away monastery becomes the poster child for missionaries all around the world. So St. Therese continues to really and truly show to us what God can achieve in and through us when we give everything to him and then allow him to work through us. So St. Therese saw as fundamental to the little way that absolute trust in God as a loving and caring father. In current times, we now have Bibles that eliminate all male pronouns. In fact, the new Revised Standard Version does this, and it is not a very good translation. It is, I don't recommend anybody buy it because it tries too hard to neutralize everything. And it ends up doing a great disservice to Scripture as a whole. And so it tries to, so they try to eliminate all male pronouns or all pronouns, period, male and female, and refer to God as some kind of generic entity. It is unfortunate that some see God the Father as highly offensive or unapproachable. I remember some years ago a woman sharing with me that she could never see God as a father figure because her own father abused her, sexually, physically, and verbally. She has a hatred and distrust of men, which one could sympathize with considering the abuse that she had suffered. Yet I lovingly challenged her on accepting God as a father figure and explained to her that more than anyone, she needed to finally get to know and embrace a father who would never abuse her, who would love her unconditionally, who would never speak cruelly to her, whom she could trust and know that that trust would never be broken. We can only think in this world of ours how many children have had terrible fathers or mothers, and how many children are growing up without fathers, and the devastating effect that that is having on them, and society as a whole, and how being fatherless or abandoned or abused by one's father leaves scars that are sometimes never healed. How necessary for our time is the little way 
that teaches us how to be children of God the Father, especially for those who've never had a deep, loving relationship with a father. As noted in Meredith Rice's review of Paul Witz's book, The Faith of the Fatherless, another excellent book that I recommend that you read. In seemingly every measurable category, the lack of a sustained, committed father-child relationship puts the child at a disadvantage, lower IQ, lower academic achievement, higher anxiety, higher rates of disruptive behavior, lower self-esteem, higher rates of drug use and violence, and an increased chance of child abuse have all been linked with the absence of fathers from their children. She goes on to say that Paul Witz presents in his book a convincing theory that another likely effect of the loss of the father on children is a distance from and doubt of God, which leads in many cases to profound atheism. The book is well written, and I highly recommend it to those who are interested in further studying the roots of atheism and how a lack of a positive father figure leads young men to doubt the existence of God. It is no surprise to read in Hitler's memoir that he never loved his father, but he feared him. As a young boy, Adolf was beaten regularly, and his father was often described by others as heartless. At one point, Adolf resolved never again to cry when my father whipped me, which seems to have stopped the beatings. Later, Adolf would become as cruel and merciless as his father, resulting in the deaths of 11 million people. Joseph Stalin, the despotic dictator of Russia, who would starve to death three to seven million of his own people and murder millions more, had a father who was an alcoholic who brutally beat him and his mother, making his childhood a living nightmare. And Mao Zedong, the ruthless dictator of China, described his father as a bully and rebelling against him, left home and found a kind of father figure in the chief librarian, librarian in Peking, who was one of the pioneer Marxists in China. It was at this point that Mao became a committed communist. He would go on to murder an estimated 45 million people. These are just three examples from what Witz would say is a clear connection between atheism and having a cruel, sadistic, and emotionally absent father in one's life. It doesn't take much of a leap to see that the increasing acceptance in our culture of atheism parallels the increasing number of households without a father figure, especially when one considers that knowing God as a personal, loving, forgiving, and caring father is something almost exclusive to Judaism and Christianity. Even more revealing 
is the powerful impact that fathers have on the faith of their children, and especially their sons. According to data collected by Promise Keepers and Baptist Press, if a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. Now that's for those who go to the Protestant evangelical uh, faiths. In the Catholic faith, the numbers aren't too much better. But in the Catholic faith, we still do have that sense of obligation that we are to go each Sunday, whereas the Protestants do not have that. And so that helps some, but not enough. If a father does go regularly, regardless of what the mother does, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will attend church as adults. Isn't that amazing? And if a father attends church irregularly, between half and two-thirds of their kids will attend church with some regularity as adults. So as to not leave you with grim statistics, I want to share with you a beautiful example of the impact that a loving and caring father can have on his child. Sam Guzman, in his article on the essential role of the father, writes the following. Carol Wojtyla, the future Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, lost his mother at nine years of age and then spent much of his time with his father. They even shared the same bedroom at night. Young Carol recalls waking up in the early hours, way before dawn, and seeing the figure of his father kneeling, deeply absorbed in prayer. This example of his father left an indelible impression on the young Carol. His earthly father had a deep and intimate relationship to God the Father and transmitted this to his son. Then Carol would become the great Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, one of the greatest and clearest reflections of true fatherhood in the history of the world. Central to St. Therese's little way is this understanding of God the Father as that deeply loving, caring, nurturing, protecting, and trustworthy Father. Therese gives us a wonderful parable to explain just how wonderful God the Father is toward his children. Here's an example which will express my thought at least a little. Suppose a clever physician's child meets with a stone in his path which causes him to fall and break a limb. His father comes to him immediately, picks him up lovingly, takes care of his hurt, using all the resources of his profession for this. His child, completely cured, shows his gratitude. The child is no doubt right in loving his father. But I'm going to make another comparison. The father, knowing there is a stone in his child's way, hastens ahead of him and removes it, 
but without anyone seeing him do it. Certainly, this child, the object of his father's tender foresight, but unaware of the misfortune from which he was delivered by him, will not thank him and will love him less than if he had been cured by him. But if he should come to learn the danger from which he escaped, will he not love his father more? Well, I am this child, the object of the foreseeing love of a father, who has not sent his word, Jesus, to save the just, but sinners. He wants me to love him because he has forgiven me not much, but all. He has not expected me to love him much like Mary Magdalene, but he has willed that I know how he has loved me with a love of unspeakable foresight in order that now I may love him unto folly. It is a wonderful way in which she truly helps us to see and understand all that God the Father has been doing for us that has been hidden. And, and have we thanked him for that? Because we don't even know about or see all these hidden things that he's been doing for us. And how, if we had all of that revealed to us, how our love would increase. And she says, we, we should just know that God the Father is already doing these hidden things. And so we should just already love him more for what he is doing, even though it is hidden from us. Isn't that beautiful? Really and truly understanding that, yeah, we thank God for when he does something obvious. <laughs> thank you, God. Yeah, I've been praying for five years. Thanks for finally answering that prayer. You know, it's like, took you long enough. You know, and then think in that five years, God has done 10,000 or 100,000 things for us that were hidden. Kind of like that leper. I always love that leper story. You know, Jesus cures the ten lepers and then tells them, go show yourself to the priests of the temple. And on their way there, they're, you know, they're, they're automatically healed, right? And one comes back, only one, to say thank you. And he's a Samaritan, just a, Jesus has to really just put that twist on it. You know, it's like, not even a Jew from Jerusalem. Nope, a Samaritan. And how, and he asks, he asks the, the one who comes back and thanks him, he goes, where are the other nine? He was like, I don't know. <laughs> something, something happened all the way and I just, you know. And so, I think about, like, our religious ed kids. So, the grade school kids, they come over in the afternoon, and so we have a snack ready for them, and then we show them uh, a religious cartoon for a half hour that teaches a good lesson. And the, the kids, you know, they'll all come up, and they'll, 
they'll, they'll be like hungry jackals and they'll get their snack, you know. And then one kid every once in a while will go, thank you, Father. <laughs> and I always say, there's the one. There's the one. <laughs> and so for us to really come to understand how we are to thank God for all of those things that we don't see. And so instead of saying, God, I'll love you more once you prove to me all these different things that you've done, is to say, God, I'll love, I love you more already because I know there's a lot of hidden things you've already done and I don't have to see them. This all reminds me of a famous line from Blessed Salonis Casey, the Franciscan brother who taught many how to thank God ahead of time. He taught them to, to thank God for future things he would do for them. And just think of all the times that God, as our loving and caring Father, has been looking out for us and helping us, guiding us, protecting us, loving us. And how, unless we're given that clear evidence of this, we are not very quick to respond to the Father with that loving and trusting and thankful heart. Let us, like Therese, learn to thank God ahead of time for all that he also will do for us, not just all that he's already done, but all that he will do for us, for all that he is doing for us right now at this moment. Let us love God for the truly caring Father that he is without needing constant proof of this. St. John Paul II, in his apostolic letter, Divini Amoris Scientia, in which he named St. Therese a doctor of the church, writes, One can say with conviction about Therese Lassoux that the Spirit of God allowed her heart to reveal directly to the people of our time the fundamental mystery, the reality of the gospel. Her little way is the way of holy childhood. There is something unique in this way, the genius of St. Therese of Lisieux. At the same time, there is the confirmation and the renewal of the most basic and most universal truth. What truth of the gospel message is really more basic and more universal than this? God is our Father, and we are his children. As we examine the Gospels and look to Jesus Christ as our example, what we see over and over again is Jesus focusing on God the Father, constantly praying to the Father, constantly seeking the Father's will, constantly pointing others to the Father. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 28, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And again in John fourteen thirty one, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And again in John five nineteen, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. And we read in Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine, And going a little farther, 
Jesus fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This is just a small sampling of the many statements Jesus makes about God the Father in the Gospels. It is no mistake, then, to think that if we are to imitate Jesus, we must ultimately imitate that deep and loving relationship he has with his Father. This is what Therese has at the heart of her little way. God the Father is not some generic, nameless existence. He purposely revealed himself to us as a father, first to the Jewish people, and then in an even deeper way through his son, Jesus. And to make God out to be anything less, because it is no longer politically correct to refer to God by using male pronouns, really misses the deeper mystery that God wants to convey to us of being that loving and caring father. To refer to God the Father only as creator or sustainer of all things takes away the familial reference and along with it the love relationship that has been established between the father and his adopted sons and daughters. Therese, if living in our world today, would reject this effort to make God the Father less than a father. To her, it would be foolishness to want to toss away such a beautiful image of who God is just to please those who have a hang-up with what they consider to be patriarchal titles. The little way begins by recognizing God as a loving and caring father. To make God anything less than this is to reduce the little way to a meaningless devotion of the past, which is what some liberals and secularists have done. And so they have robbed themselves and others of a most beautiful way to know, trust, and love God. Complete trust in God as a benevolent, loving, merciful, and tender father is at the heart and soul of the little way. Now that we have firmly established the importance of seeing, understanding, and relating to God as this caring Father, let us look further at God the Father as that merciful Father. Earlier, we examined the effects that Jansenism had upon Therese and her Carmelite community and upon the practice of the faith in France, that is, of seeing and understanding God as a severe judge who was cold and distant, and who often evoked fear, and who grudgingly showed mercy, if at all, toward his children. One of the most fundamental teachings of the little way is trusting in the divine mercy of God the Father. Our God is a Father whose heart has compassion for his children, whose heart is moved with pity for them, especially when he sees them hurting in some way. While it is true that God loves us unconditionally, Therese said that this love is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card, but that in order to receive this unconditional love, we must be in touch with our weakness. Littleness, helplessness, weakness. 
Only when we admit that we are these things are we able to open our hearts to receive the abundance of God's mercy. It is only in realizing our emptiness that we are filled to overflowing with God's love. So we are called to trust in God's mercy with a childlike trust, the way a child inherently trusts a loving father. We are called to completely give ourselves inadequacies and all to God the Father. As St. Teresa of Calcutta, a devotee of the little flower, said so beautifully, even God could do nothing for someone already full. You have to be completely empty to let him in to do what he will. This is really the little way in a nutshell. Therese speaks to us of having that complete confidence in God the Father. Just as a person cannot love God too much, so in Therese's understanding, one can never trust God too much. She says with conviction, we can never have enough confidence in God who is so good, so powerful, so merciful. If we struggle with anything, it really is trusting in God with a complete childlike trust. As adults, it becomes more difficult to do this because we like to be in control. And often we can place our trust in our own abilities or in the things of this world instead of God. We must once again have those hearts of children who completely trust God in everything. Therese goes so far as to say, I know what it means to count on his mercy. Therese was assured by her spiritual director that she had never committed a mortal sin. So some would question whether it would be easier for her to have that confidence in God's mercy because she was in less need of it than other souls. She responds. (laughs) Make it clear, mother, that if I had committed all possible crimes... I would still have the same confidence in God's mercy. I would feel that this multitude of offenses would be like a drop of water cast into a blazing fire. How could there be any limits to my confidence? Wow, what a powerful response. For Therese, she would continually go back to what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew. Let the little children be, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Therese saw that the biggest obstacle to us becoming little children is us. We are the ones who put obstacles in the way of us being able to have that deep childlike trust of God. For Therese, one does not have to master all the spiritual classics in order to obtain heaven. For her, it is in her littleness that she finds assurance of a place in heaven. I leave to great souls and lofty minds the beautiful books I cannot understand, much less put into practice. And I rejoice that I am little, because children alone and those who resemble them are 
will be admitted to the heavenly banquet. I am glad that there are many mansions in the kingdom of God, because if there were only those whose description and whose road seemed to me incomprehensible, I could never enter there. Therese recorded in one of her notebooks one of the scriptures from the book of Isaiah that speaks to her of the absolute tenderness of God toward his children. You shall be carried at the breasts, and upon the knees they shall caress you. As one whom the mother caresseth, so will I comfort you. For Therese, she saw how, as a child gets older, it depends less and less on its parents. So her desire was to become as young as possible. Since the younger a child is, the more dependent it is upon the parents. She wanted to be as dependent as possible on God the Father by being the littlest that she could. She writes in the story of the soul, How happy I am to realize that I am little and weak. How happy I am to see myself so imperfect. So that great insight that she has of the littler I become, the more dependent I am on God. It is such a great and amazing way to God the Father. How many of us can say that we are happy to be little and weak? How many of us can say that we would be happy to find ourselves so imperfect? How many of us would say instead, maybe most of us, would rather rejoice in being strong, confident, in control, and that very few of us would rejoice in seeing ourselves as imperfect. And yet that is exactly what she says we must do. One must be careful here when reading Therese, for she is not saying that being imperfect is the same thing as saying, I'll always be a sinner, so why try? She is saying instead that because she realizes she is imperfect, she relies totally on God instead of herself. And in being imperfect, she gets to benefit from the beautiful gift of his mercy. Let us once again turn to her autobiography as she reflects on this. It is needful to remain little before God, and to remain little is to recognize one's nothingness. Expect all things from the good God, just as a little child expects all things from its father. It is not to be troubled by anything, not to try to make a fortune. Even among poor people, a child is given all it needs, as long as it has, as long as it is very little, but as soon as it has grown up, the father does not want to support it any longer and says, Work, now you are able to take care of yourself. Because I never want to hear these words, I do not want to grow up. Feeling that I can never earn my living, that is, eternal life in heaven, so I have to stay, so I have stayed little 
and have no other occupation than that of gathering flowers of love and sacrifice and of offering them to the good God to please him. Isn't that wonderful? Because he never wants to hear those words, you know, go out, get to work, get out of the basement, you're 30 years old, it's time to move on. (laughs) She is, of course, then applying this in a spiritual way of saying, I don't want to ever hear those words of, of God saying, I have to leave his presence. I have to go out on my own because she says I, I, I can never earn my living. In other words, I can never earn heaven, which is absolutely correct. And the Catholic Church has always taught that from the beginning. We can never earn heaven. And so she herself really just has this wonderful insight of, yeah, the only way I can keep myself from getting thrown out of the house is by keeping myself little. And the littler, the better because that's going to keep me even closer to God. Such wisdom and such insight. Therese does not rely on her merits, good works, or penances. She realizes, as the Catholic Church has always taught, taught, that we cannot earn that salvation. She realizes that she must surrender all to God and rely completely on His grace and mercy. And all that is required of her is to love with the heart of Jesus and offer sacrifices of love to God the Father. Therese's littleness saw that in the virtuous things that she did, it was not her own accomplishment, as though these these things originated in her, but rather the source of her virtue is found in God, and that whatever talents that she had had their source in God. Whatever gifts she had, they had their source in God. That she utilized these things for good, but they always had their origin in God. I remember a philosophy professor of mine at the University of San Francisco who spoke on this and how irritated he would get when somebody would have a particular talent, such as performing surgery, but would say when complimented on the success of the surgery, No, 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 it wasn't me that did the surgery, it was God. This professor said, it cheapened the compliment being given, as well as made one dismiss a particular gift or talent that he or she was given. Therese, I think, would totally agree and say that while the talent to do the surgery was something that had its origin in God, the surgeon, in recognizing and making use of this talent, was utilizing something given to him or her and was doing this to achieve good. The problem would enter in is if the surgeon decided that his or her talent originated with him or her and had no connection to God and that he or she was performing surgery only to make money and to gain fame. Therese also saw the importance of not letting failure that is allowing our faults to cause discouragement in us. Like a little child, when it falls, since it does not have far to fall, its injuries are usually slight, and the child recovers quickly. We see, you know, the little ones, they're just learning to walk, and all of a sudden, boop. It's amazing, because the parents, you know, at first, they're, like, right there all the time, and then after a while, you know, the child kind of, like, walks off a ledge like this, and they're like, well, 
It'll be fine. It'll fall on the carpet. You know, it's like, because they just kind of bounce back. They just, it's, it's, they don't have far to fall. And she saw that if we as little children, we, we basically remain close to God. And when we do fall, it would only be slight. And at the time it would take for us to return to God and, and return to his love would be short. But someone who thinks that they have matured beyond needing God as that loving father, when they fall, they will have a greater distance to fall and a much longer recovery time in returning to God. And of course, you don't have to explain this to older people. That is, they get older and, you know, you break a bone when you're in your 60s or 70s, the recovery time is much, much longer. And so she's using this, this wonderful example, remaining as children, remaining close to God. When we do fall, it's just a small fall, and we're immediately back into God's love in no time. Like a small child resting against the bosom of God the Father, the odds of us falling away are so much less and our desire to return to the warmth that embrace after briefly pulling away is much stronger. Therese writes in a letter to one of the Carmelite sisters, You are not sufficiently trusting. You fear God too much. I assure you that this grieves him. Do not be afraid of going to purgatory because of its pain, but rather long not to go there because this pleases God, who imposes this expiation so regretfully. From the moment that you try to please him in all things, if you have the unshakable confidence that he will purify you at every instant in his love and will leave you in no trace of sin, be very sure that you will not go to purgatory. It seems to me that there will be no judgment for victims of love, or rather, the good God will hasten to reward with eternal delights, his own love, which he will see burning in their hearts. It is at this point that I want to address another aspect of the little way, which is the rooting out of the self-centeredness. Therese, while recognizing that we're all called to selfless acts of love, no matter how small or insignificant, could begin, we could begin, she sees that we could begin to see ourselves as better than others who do not practice these things. And thus, through pride, we lose whatever grace was gained in these acts of love. Therese recognized that her small acts of kindness were at times tied to making herself feel better and to the need for approval from other persons besides God. In pleasing others while recognizing the good in letting small things go, overlooking the faults of others, not responding to insults, etc. She recognized earlier in her life how she was determining her self-worth, even her very identity, and the affirmation from others. This is a very slippery slope, which any of us can find ourselves on when we allow our self-esteem, our worthiness as a person, to depend on the affirmations from others. For when we don't receive these, we can grow despondent and think of ourselves as worthless. And so in our neediness, we seek out those affirmations even more. 
What Therese was going to need to learn, as we all need to, is that our worth, our dignity as a person comes from God and not from other people. That as a child of God, we come to see and understand that we cannot allow ourselves to determine our worth as a person from what others may or may not say to us about us or about us to others. I remember a priest some years ago sharing with me outside the confessional. I wanted to put that in there because I want to let you know I'm not breaking the seal of the confessional. That he had finally come to realization that his happiness could not depend on or come from other people. He had been looking for that one person who would take the place of God. Because frankly, God seemed far away and people were so close and so real. Yet after being disappointed by a number of friendships and sexual encounters, he had finally reached the point in his life where he realized the only one who could offer him that lasting happiness known as joy was God. He had, for the first time in his life, surrendered himself to God with a childlike trust and saw his self-worth not in the affirmations of others, but in pleasing God. It was an incredible breakthrough for him and freed him from the tyranny that comes with, trying, with tying one's self-esteem completely to the affirmations of others. For sooner or later, we will receive something negative, and along with that, we then see ourselves in a negative way. Therese truly struggled with this, sharing from her childhood an experience with a classmate whom she had formed a friendship something that did not come easily to her. At one point in the friendship, they had several months away from each other, during which time Therese shares what she was, that she was particularly sad. The absence then being over, Therese writes, When I saw my companion back again, my joy was great, but all I received from her was a cold glance. My love was not understood. Therese did not understand how she could have given her heart completely to her friend, and her friend had just completely forgotten about her over the months that they were apart. Therese, after this incident, withdrew emotionally and did not share with anyone the pain that she was experiencing. Therese goes on to write, My heart, sensitive and affectionate as it was, would have easily surrendered had it found a heart capable of understanding it. Therese had yet to understand that she was trying to fill that place in her heart with human affection that only God can fill. She later writes, I was preserved from it, that is, infatuation and emotional attachment, only through God's mercy. So at this point, we're going to go ahead and conclude the third conference We'll pick up tomorrow, looking further into the little way. But tonight, hopefully, this has helped you to understand that really at the center of the little way is understanding and having God as that truly loving, caring, warm, embracing, protecting, absolutely loving Father. 
when we can finally approach God the Father in that way and truly allow him to embrace us, then we will be able to live this little way in the most incredible way because that is the one thing that Therese says has to happen or else we can never go any further because then we will put up all kinds of obstacles between us and that relationship with God the Father. So the reflection questions that I gave you for tonight basically ask some of those questions of our own experiences with our own fathers and father figures and how we come to see and truly understand God the Father. Hopefully, if any of you have experienced those bad father relationships or even experienced male relationships that were abusive, that that will not be an obstacle in coming to see and embracing God the Father as that truly caring Father. It is, I think, is one of the most beautiful devotions for our 21st century. I think we are emerging as a culture and, to some extent, a world that is going to see more and more fatherlessness. When you read statistics that basically show you that now, basically, 50 to 70% of African-American children are born into fatherless homes. What is that ultimately going to do for the African-American community? And what is that going to do to all those families over the long run? It is something that our nation needs to address. It is, it is, a, it is a critical issue. But I think the little way addresses it in the most beautiful of ways. That where you have that absence of fathers, then those young people, those children, need to find and have that wonderful, deep, loving relationship with God the Father.